Hello and welcome to Radio SGN. I am one of your humble hosts, A.V. Eichenbaum. Pronouns they, them, and I'm roasting over here. I'm loving this sunshine. Lindsay Anderson is with me. She, her pronouns. Lindsay, it's a sunny weekend. It is a sunny weekend, and I'm so excited. It's supposed to be in the 80s after we record this, and it's supposed to continue to get warmer throughout the week. Slap my ass and call me Grimace because I'm loving it. It's hot Grimace summer. Oh my gosh. Well, now I'm just picturing Grimace like slapping his ass. That guy could twerk, I'm sure. What are Grimace's pronouns? They them, right? I don't know the McDonald's lore. I think Grimace is a he. Yeah, but he also, there is an Uncle Grimace. There's a Grimace O'Shaughnessy. Originally, he was to promote the Shamrock Shake. Oh, is he an Irish Grimace? Yeah, he's an Ir- He's green. Oh, so like a big booger. Yeah, like a big booger. And then there was that time where Grimace, like some guy won best manager of a McDonald's in the UK <laughs> and out of nowhere just declared that Grimace was a giant taste bud. What? McDonald's had to release a statement saying, actually, Grimace might be a taste bud, but we can't, like, they won't tell you what Grimace is. Originally, he was a villain and he had four arms in McDonald Land commercials. So I have to ask because I feel like this was just not a part of my childhood. And we're not that far apart in age, but far apart enough that I feel like you have distant memories of the 90s. And Mm. I spent most of the 90s as like a sperm. Sure. So I was wondering, did McDonald's play like a large role in your childhood? Is this like a 90s kids thing that people know about McDonald's? No, I actually don't like eating fast food. It makes me feel sick. We did eat it on occasion, but the only thing I would ever get is the fish filet. Fancy. That's how you know you're from California. (laughs) Fish filet at the drive-thru. The filet of fish, please. Yeah, the tartar sauce always really got me. But the thing was, I worked at McDonald's for about a year in college. My fascination with fast food and brands in general is the main way people realize I'm on the spectrum. Because I have this like deep horror, respect, and fascination with the characters. And we put these ideas into people's heads, these characters of like, oh, this is a family-friendly restaurant and this is what we're selling. But it's poison. (laughs) It's all poison and it tastes great. I love chicken nuggets. I really do. I had to grow to kind of love them more when I was working there because it's all I could afford. But yeah, my hometown is a fast food testing ground. So like we would get all the weird shit before anyone else did, like the Burger King mac and Cheetos, which were like their chicken fingers, except they were mac and cheese inside of them. The Doritos Locos Tacos came to us first. The McDonald's franchises there have Gilroy garlic fries on the menu in the summer. It's a whole thing. I've always found it fascinating. And sometimes just to cheer myself up, I'll go on to quick service restaurant websites, fast food websites, and look at their press releases and see what's going on. Like That's why I wrote back when it was happening about the Taco Bell drag brunches. So I was like, oh, two of the things I like intersect. (laughs) But I know a lot about McDonald's lore because it fascinates me. But also there was a cartoon that we used to watch in kindergarten. Like sometimes the teachers just had a McDonald land VHS tape and it was done by the guy who did the Rugrats. So it was like the same animation style as the Rugrats, but it was all about McDonald land. And then there was like a weird live action portion where he had a dog that was a horrifying puppet. Oh, that is terrifying. Just imagining... Any McDonald's character in Rugrats form is terrifying because Rugrats is kind of a creepy animation style, you know, like the concept is babies. Yeah. And it's like fun. And when you're a kid, like maybe you don't really get it, but I just feel like it gives off grime, you know? Yeah. And I think that is intentional. I've gone through a lot of like when I was a kid, I wanted to do everything and 
every type of creative thing. So I just really researched all of it. I would get books from the library about animation and I would look at the behind the scenes features on every DVD. Didn't matter if I liked the movie or not. I grew up with this sense of curiosity that I hope I've kept, right? But I was encouraged by my folks. It's like, oh, you don't know something about that? Go find it out. So I really, when I want to know more, I do go and I find it out. And that's dangerous now because I'm like always on my phone. But I used to want to be in like animation. I used to want to be a Jim Henson puppeteer creative. So I like learned how to do all of these things to a very amateur level and then was like, eh, actually, I'm just going to, I'm good at writing. I'm going to stick with writing. And then I worked at McDonald's. And did you know, here's a fun thing about Mickey D's. The corporate term for people who come into McDonald's a lot, do you want to know what it is? Ronald regulars. It's heavy users. I'm not joking. I wish I was joking, but you get this like very sick gallows sense of humor working in and around fast food. And it's like, I wonder how many people's congenital heart failure I've contributed to by being a cashier there. Sorry, we were supposed to talk about summer. Oh, yeah. And this is, I guess, summer job stuff. I feel like McDonald's is summer, though. Like, all of my memories of McDonald's in Spokane is, like, going there in the summer with babysitters. And I was going to (laughs) say, I have this, like, distinct core memory of being in the McDonald's, eating a McDonald's, like, ice cream sundae, and watching a car explode in the parking lot. Like, there was just this old van that just caught fire. It was, like, the hottest day of the year in Spokane. And I was just sitting in the McDonald's eating my ice cream, and everybody was just standing by the window, like, watching this van on fire. And then it went poof and it exploded and it looked like something from like a movie. And my little mind was just like as blown as that truck. I also have traumatic experiences from the McDonald's parking lot, but I was much older. (laughs) But we could talk about that another time because it's hot out and it's gorgeous and everyone's complaining about it. Sure, the planet's burning up. Yeah. What is the deal with that, though? What's the deal? Every Seattle local native. Well, okay, it's like. Half 50-50 Seattle locals that, you know, grew up, born and raised here and they never let you forget it. And 50-50, I feel like people from California that moved here six months ago, but then like to call themselves a Seattle local and make TikToks where they're like, things to do in Seattle, very unique. And it's like Pike Place Market and they're calling it Pike's (laughs) Place Market. And you're like, fuck you. Yeah. But these are the people that the weather gets warm and they hate it. They're like, I hate seeing the mountain out and all of the greenery and the sunshine on my face. Bring back the doom and gloom. And it's like, are you okay? Yeah, it's a very Seattle thing because I also know working where I worked for many years here in Eastlake, the favorite point of conversation for a lot of older Seattleites and, you know, middle-aged Seattleites is just to complain about the weather. Oh, yeah. It's the number one conversation starter. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's wet out there, huh? Ugh. Oh, it's too cold. Oh, it's snowing. Oh, God, it's so hot. Oh, the summer. I will start a conversation with someone and be like, yeah, kind of a nice day, huh? Instead of like specifically talking about the weather and see their reaction. And I would say nine times out of 10, eight times out of 10, they're just like, I don't know. I wish it would be some other type of weather. Like, oh, I wish it would rain or I wish we had some sun. Yeah. I constantly just want sun. So <laughs> this is great for me. I was like, this is the ideal weather. Like you ask anybody in anywhere and sunny in 75, you don't need a coat. You don't need to be putting on the short shorts and the tank tops and just sweating out your ass. It's perfect. And yet Seattle just loves to hate it. I'm fully wearing a retro Spelljammer D&D crop top today. I'm loving it. I'm living for this. Well, folks, we're a little bit sun drunk, if you can't tell. It's a joyous occasion here because we've had a lot of rough stuff going on the last few months. And it's just a beautiful, 
day. And maybe we should just appreciate that. We've got a great interview coming up for you. And we're going to talk about the news. Don't you worry. Thanks for sticking with us. Everything and more after the break. Hi, this is Dr. V. Hill with V. Hill Family Medicine. Ever wish your doctor knew you by name, understood where you were coming from, and listened to your unique health concerns and worries? I have built just such a practice where the focus is on you and the care delivered is in line with your values and ideals. Learn more about affirming primary care at V. Hill Family Medicine. Visit VIGILMD.com or call 253-693-0071. History begins somewhere, and in Seattle, LGBTQ plus history began in Pioneer Square. As early as the 1930s, LGBTQ plus folks started coming to this neighborhood to form community, make friends, meet lovers, care for those who were sick, and fight for their rights. On Square One, from History Link, hear stories from people who live this history firsthand and those who want to keep this history alive. Square One is available wherever you find your podcasts. Joining me today via Zoom is someone I'm really excited for you all to be introduced to. They're a triple threat, a comedian, a writer, and all-around just good dude. They're Jamie Lozick. You may know them from Improv Around Town, from Flock, or from any of their writing you can find on Medium, and one of your articles was on HuffPost, which I mentioned earlier, and I want to get into that. Jamie, thank you so much for being on Radio SGN today. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me, Hans. What you been up to? What's new? What's going on in the world of Jamie Lozick? What's going on? How I've been just like high year doing lots of improv stuff for sure. Yeah, I am involved with Bandit Theater in Seattle, so... I teach with them. I just started teaching. I had my first class for like our improv 101 class this past Saturday. And then I'm also on The Reader, which is this really cool show that we do. Two people come up from the audience, separate people, and they get their tarot read. We do improv separately from that off of the tarot reading. So that, and we're doing this really cool thing called Smash the Patriarchy which is an LGBTQ women and Sims jam. And we're doing our first round of that this coming Sunday. Yeah. And then a lot of people are like, what is a jam? So an improv jam is basically like anyone who wants to do improv for any skill level, just come and we all just do improv together. We break up in different groups. If you have like people that you want to do improv with, you can come and sign up as a group and it's, just kind of like a way to stretch your performance muscles. We do it like on stage, sort of, at the different venues where we have our regular bandit shows. So I'm excited about doing that. Yeah, I'm sure Improv 101, Improv Jams, there's a lot of yes anding. There's a lot of mirror exercises. I'm a big fan of the art form, actually. Improv comedy has a special place in my heart. It's where I got some of my start. But do you have a favorite game that you guys play for audiences? Or is the tarot show what your focus is right now? 
the tarot show is kind of like the main focus. So we do what's called long form game based improv. It's a little different from what places I think a lot of people are familiar with improv through whose line is it anyway? Oh, sure. Yeah. I think that was my first introduction to improv. But what they do, what that is, is short form improv. Mm -hmm. So with the games and stuff where they get a suggestion or they're playing around with props. But for long form improv, we do what's called premise based improv in the reader. So each cast member will come up with a premise for an initiation of a scene based on the tarot reading. Then we kind of have a certain format that we play based around those premises. As the scenes go on and the show unfolds, we kind of like bring out the world and we'll create certain characters and then bring those characters back like later in the set. And how long is the tarot reading? Is it like a three card setup or is it like a five card cross section or does it depend on the person? It kind of depends on the person. Annie Barry, who she's the director of Bandit Theater, she is the reader. She introduces herself as the reader and she talks as we and she becomes this like really great, like larger than life character on stage. And I think that she has each person pull, I want to say four or five cards. And then sometimes depending on how the reading goes, she'll have them pull like another one at the end that they have something in particular that they're thinking about or having a question about. That sounds like a lot of fun. Let's switch gears a little bit here. So, like I said, you are a writer and I Googled you before we had this interview just to kind of familiarize myself. And I saw that you had sort of an op-ed about top surgery that gained a lot of popularity back in 2022, even showing up on HuffPost. Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, definitely. Great. So it's a very vulnerable situation. It's a very vulnerable piece. But how did you feel about getting a lot of attention for something that you put out on, I think, like contently or medium or something, just getting it picked up by a lot of places? Oh, I felt great about it. When I initially wrote that piece, it was, God, I think it was January of 2022. And even, I mean, worse than like in this moment now, but even then there was a lot of like terrible legislation going through like state legislatures to ban gender affirming care. And just in the previous year, I had top surgery. And like, if you read the piece, like it was an incredibly like transformational, like amazing experience for yeah, me. Yeah. And so it was so weird to be, to see all of these like false representations in the media. These state legislators were pandering for people who wanted to detransition or how gender affirming care is harmful. And I'm like, that's not my experience at all. So I wrote that just about how great I felt after I had top surgery. And and then I was like, yeah, I want to share this with people because there's so much of the other quote unquote other side, but there's just all of this bullshit being pandered about how terrible it is. And I was like, I really want to share like my viewpoint because I think that I'm in the majority. And so it was great to see it get really popular. And yeah, got, I think the editor said... I at, like that it was doing really well and had like 1.200,000 views. Wow. And I was like, oh, is that a lot? And he was like, we hope for 50,000 and 100,000 is great. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Like from, from the SGN's point of view, we get a, between 28,000 and maybe 75,000 on a busy month for our website in general. That's amazing. 
Was there any blowback, any pushback? Did you ever hear from, quote, the opposition, the sort of hateful side of things? There were a couple times where I did what you're not supposed to do. And I read some of the comments online, right? Mm-hmm. Never read the comments. A couple moments, I just had to dip my toe in a little bit. And it was just right at the beginning where right after it was posted, I opened the comments up and I read a few. But I think that I was just on such a high otherwise from getting it published and getting it out there and being really proud of it. And then I had so much positive feedback from it that the comments that I read, it's weird. They didn't really affect me. And it was all the usual bullshit that people say that, no, is not true, like that I'm going to regret it or that I ruined my body. I'm like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, it's like they don't even read the article. They read the headline and then they go, well, I have an opinion about this. And you can't argue with a person like that. You know, it's just voices in the wind at that point. We've been talking about this on the show a lot because we do have a lot of gender diverse and trans folks coming on and sharing. They're working in media. They're doing all sorts of things. But we see a continued narrative. And we don't get to talk about this from a journalistic perspective a lot. But we see a continued narrative of anything having to do with top surgery or gender diversity. It's often focusing on detransitioning because it seems a lot more salacious. But detransitioners are a very small part of the population of trans folks. So it's wild to me that that's the voice that always gets shoved to the forefront. And it's really refreshing to see that your article did so well and that you got at least a lot, mostly good feedback, it sounds like. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. What we're talking about is exactly why I wanted to write that. And a part of like why I wanted to start writing is because... When I look outwards, there are so many of these like representations of, yeah, like cis heteronormativity or like detransitioners or people who regret transition and this and that. And you all are just searching for things that are going to revalidate your own mindset. And I know that is not all that is out there. And I know that is like not all that there is valid because I exist Another trans and gender diverse people exist and we've been existing for centuries. The only reason that we don't have like more representation in the media and visibility is just because they are choosing not to do that It's because we're continually like silenced. And also, I think it's funny that people hold up these examples of detransitioners to be like, oh, this is why we shouldn't let trans and gender expansive people have gender affirming care because it's never it's not if someone moves away from like their hometown and then they like decide that they don't they're from like new york city and they decide to move to lawrence kansas Mm -hmm. and then they decide they don't like lawrence kansas new york city isn't like no you can't come back you like already made the decision it's not like we should allow people to make decisions and decisions about their body and have like bodily autonomy. And even if those are things that they regret later, that's fine. Like we're human beings, like we're going to make decisions that we regret, but that doesn't mean that you get to stop letting people make decisions about their body full stop. Absolutely. This is a little bit of a curveball here, but I was just thinking about there's the show that was like late 80s, early 90s. I caught a lot of reruns of it when I was a kid. It's called Tales from the Dark Side. And they have this episode where a guy hits his head and he wakes up and he starts seeing all these giant insectoid creatures. I'm getting to a point, I promise. 
But these giant insectoid creatures that are like feeding on mainly people in cancer wards. And he's like, what's this? What's going on? And he looks around. He's like, he sees them everywhere. And then someone's like, don't you know, that's where cancer comes from. And it wasn't happening before the 1970s and da 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 da. And I feel like that's how conservatives, especially very far right conservatives, see gender diversity and transness is just like a thing that just started happening. And there's some secret otherworldly force causing it to happen in other people. Anyway, that was the image that came into my head was, I guess, giant ants, like giant insects transing my gender. I think it's that. And then I think it's also that they are so terrified to to let any sort of, I don't know, like freedom of identity into their like meticulous house of cards lie matrix that they've constructed inside of their brain, right? They're like, there's only one way to live your life, and that is to be white and heterosexual and cis and to make lots of money and grow up and start a family and live in my single family house with my nuclear family. Like anything that threatens that way of life, they're like, nope, got to do away with it. We can't let that happen. Yeah, and that's the media's message that we continue to receive on all sides. You can't walk down the street without seeing a billboard being like, hey, you're going to have kids one day, invest or something. Or like, I guess we'll know that the movements made it, that people are accepted when capitalism starts to really ramp it up with, hey, you're going to need top surgery soon. Hey, have you thought about your gender lately? Citibank, we're almost out of time. Where can we find you online? You can find me on Twitter. And so that's just my name, Jamie Lazic, J-A-I-M-E-L-A-Z-I-C-H. If you just Google that, honestly, you'll find most of my stuff online. And then online, it's at Mm. Jamples. And so that's J-A-M-P-L-E-S. And then that word again. (laughs) Jamples twice. Wow. Okay, great. Nate's so nice. You got to say it twice. (laughs) And is there anything that you'd like to tell our listeners before we go? Do you have any shows coming up or any closing thoughts? Yeah, I would say check out Bandit Theater. You can do that at bandittheater.org. Come to a jam. We have a jam called the Roundup Jam at 18th and Union most of the time. Come to this massive patriarchy jam. Come to a reader show. You can come see me do stand up. I'm usually at the Comedy Nest on Tuesdays, doing stand-up there. And then it hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to be starting a Substack. So if you are interested in any more of my writing, it hasn't been made yet, but it will soon be live. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. An absolute pleasure. And take care. Thanks. Yeah, I feel like we could have talked for a lot longer. We absolutely could. Maybe we'll have you on (laughs) a couple months from now. Lindsay, you went to this great event called the Mapumaya Clinic Opening in Kent. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because Utopia Washington, they're the folks that threw it our way, said, hey, can you come to this thing? Everyone I've talked to at Utopia Washington has just been a dream. Tell me what was going on there. First of all, it was the most welcoming event I've ever been to. Like, I've gone and covered a series of different events. I was at the like the groundbreaking for the new LGBTQ old folks home that's being built in Capitol Hill. But this one stood out to me because the moment I came there, everybody was smiling and they were like, welcome. And they put a real flower lay around my neck. I've never had one of those before. It was fragrant and beautiful. 
And every single guest was given that. And I was like, I'm a member of the press. Like, are you sure you want me like sitting here under your shade umbrella wearing a lei? And they were like, yeah, welcome. They had a couple of speeches before they did the ribbon cutting ceremony. And it was just incredible to hear and learn in person about Utopia Washington and their mission, because that level of welcomeness that they showed me is just how they treat everybody. It's this amazing organization that is helping to bridge a lot of gaps for Pacific Islander community, especially queer and trans Pacific Islander community in the Seattle region. When Utopia Washington started, they were providing like aid with free clothing and food and kind of whatever care people in their community might be needing. And they felt like that wasn't enough. And what they really wanted to do was provide health care for queer and trans people. And a lot of the trans women that are at the forefront of the opening of this clinic talked about their personal experiences from the islands where they grew up, like American Samoa, where trans health care isn't seen as a necessity and often isn't available. And when it is available, it's not provided free of cost. But what they're doing at their clinic is providing free health care, specifically gender affirming health care for anybody that comes in. They won't take your insurance. They won't take any of your money if you try to pay them. It's just amazing. The doctor and nurse are working pro bono there and they're hoping to expand it as well to eventually bring in a pro bono therapist that can sign off on procedures that right now need a therapist to sign off on before they can move forward. That is fantastic. Not only is their mission great, again, the people who work at Utopia Washington, I've never met one that's been like difficult to talk to or like standoffish in a way that I've come to expect from people in the Pacific Northwest. You know, it's lovely. It's a lovely mission. It's a really great step for mutual aid. And I hope that other organizations can take a page out of the uh, Mapumaya playbook, as it were. And I want to see that happening more. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that makes this story worth really discussing and talking about and projecting. Because, yeah, if it can successfully work for this community, maybe other communities as well can open up clinics or just other community-centered spaces. I mean, with Mapumaya, one thing that really stands out to me is the name itself is a word that translates to, it's a phrase that you would say to somebody recognizing that they've been on a difficult journey and saying, like, we want to provide you with sanctuary and a space to just rest. And I think that is beautiful. And that really does summarize the whole energy from this event that I was at, that they see how difficult the experiences of these people that have multiple marginalizations, not only as transgender people, but as Pacific Islanders, as non-white people in the Pacific Northwest. And they are just providing them a space to exist and not have to worry about meeting their basic needs. I love that they can, that Utopia Washington can carry themselves with such joy and care for the community while still doing something that is incredibly needed. I'm always blown away by what Utopia Washington continues to do. Speaking of community outreach, we've got an open letter from another District 3 candidate, Joy Hollingsworth, who was on the show a couple weeks back. I want to give her a shout out. Just go ahead and read it. And it lists what she is envisioning for her campaign. You and Isabel Mata talked a little bit about Andrew Oshiofu's open letter, but I just want to get the quick rundown of what Joy says she's envisioning for the Seattle of the future, right? She envisions a Seattle where girls like she was when she was growing up are surrounded by community and diversity. Children are able to access green spaces 
Families have accesses to the resources that they need to thrive. The LGBTQIA community not only has a seat and voice at the table, but is seen, valued, provided resources. Neighbors are small business owners. Transportation is accessible. Accessing mental health resources and substance use counseling is not a barrier to achieving stable housing. Young people are engaged in their communities and empowered. Seniors are able to age in place gracefully and with dignity, and affordable child care is available. Now, the age in place thing, I really want to hit home here because Joy grew up in the Central District, you know, and the Central District is being gentrified rapidly. And so a lot of people who have lived there forever, mostly black elderly folks, are being pushed out and they're not allowed to just live in the house that they've owned forever. Mm -hmm. And that's really upsetting to me, you know, and that's really upsetting to a lot of the folks that like I have this friend, Michael, we used to work together and he grew up in the central district and his grandmother, he had to like buy his house from his grandmother. We worked in shipping and so he had enough cash, but he had to buy his house from his grandmother so that they could continue to afford to live there while the taxes and, and property values went up because people were trying to push them out. And that's like really rare. That's not what usually happens. You know, usually it's not a success story. It, it sucks, but I'm glad that she's taking notice of that. You know, district three is a huge district. It's a very different district depending on which neighborhood you're in. But I, again, I think Joy really has a lot of solid, well-laid-out plans and steps. And you can read her open letter. Do you have any thoughts on this, Lindsay? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I love that she also highlighted green spaces as being so important. I think Seattle is one of the greenest cities that I've gotten the chance to see. And I love that that's just an emphasis that we want to keep Seattle green and make sure that there are plenty of areas for young people, but people, I guess, of any age to get out in nature and enjoy it, especially when so much of our city lives in like apartment living. And so people don't have backyards and those kind of spaces that more suburban communities might have. And I think also going back to the gentrification thing that you were talking about with the Central District, I think gentrification is also a huge issue that we see in Capitol Hill, especially because the neighborhood is historically the queer neighborhood, the gayborhood. And we're seeing that for a lot of queer people that age, it becomes harder to maintain a stable income as well because you don't have the support oftentimes of children that a lot of like cishet people do. And I don't know, I've just been seeing prices are going up in Capitol Hill. It's a lot harder to rent here. And it's a lot of tech bros are starting to encroach a little bit. And so I think that she's going to be a great proponent in keeping Capitol Hill gay. Yeah, I think she's got a lot of good ideas. Again, we talked on the show. You can go ahead and listen back to that interview. I hope that any other candidates listening to this who want to express their opinions and their beliefs and their plans in an open letter to our readership, go ahead and reach out at editor at sgn.org. You know, we'll accept those political open letters. And I think it's important that we continue to support the politicians that support our community. Yeah, I also think open letter is a great way to hear directly from the politicians what it is they want and what they're planning on doing because, you know, it's a horse's mouth. So use our open letters that we've published as well when you're voting this fall. Yeah, absolutely. Like, vote. Vote. <laughs> vote. I had more thoughts there, but just that's it. Vote. Well, you still can before they take it away from us. Speaking of politicians, oh man, I, okay, so Joe Biden. Good old Joe. Good old Uncle Joe. First off, he has this thing with ice cream that I find, this is in the same vein of like weird character lore and fast food lore that I obsess over. Like Reagan loved jelly beans. 
Joe Biden has continued to reference ice cream in speeches that have nothing to do with it. This is not the news, folks, but I went on this deep dive yesterday. <laughs> I was talking to someone and I was like, you know, the ice cream thing that Joe Biden said. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I googled Joe Biden ice cream and there wasn't just one incident. There were like five incidents where he did some weird thing with ice cream. Anyway, sorry, I'm way off topic on this, but he spoke for like five minutes about how much he likes local ice cream in Nashville, Tennessee, before talking about the gravity of the school shooting that had just happened. Good old Joe. Good old Joe. And he is officially running. He is running again and... Great. So the debt ceiling. Ice cream for everybody. Ice cream for everybody. Lindsay, how much do you know about the debt ceiling? Because I just found out that we're one of two countries in the entire world that has one. I know a little bit about the debt ceiling. I know that we've pretty much maxed out. So the thing about the debt ceiling, right, it's how much money can the United States government borrow? Yeah. It's a completely made up law and number. It was supposed to help with us not over spending and with us not borrowing too much. But we as a country, the U.S., has raised the debt ceiling 78 times, which is crazy because there's only one other country. Again, it's Denmark that has a debt ceiling. They've raised it once and it was when they doubled it because they were like, oh, we're getting close there. But the thing is, the U.S. is in an economic powerhouse. And if we hit our debt ceiling, millions of jobs are going to be lost. The debt that we have to pay back will not get paid back and we will go into economic ruin. It could cause a crazy economic downturn. A lot of tech companies are freaking out already economically. So if we add to that all these layoffs that are already happening in tech, which is usually a pretty stable industry for high paying jobs that continue to keep Seattle's economy going, even in times of recession, we as Seattleites might be facing some issues in the very near future. But the whole country is going to be facing a lot of problems and the whole world as a result of that, because we are such a big spender. So we're looking at potential global financial collapse if we don't raise our debt ceiling, which is a made up thing <laughs> that we have raised 78 times before and continues to be a point of argument just because Republicans and Democrats don't like each other and they don't agree on anything. And it's a way, I think, to keep the populace that's uh, paying attention, keep the populace afraid. We just keep borrowing money. Mm. The inflation that we're experiencing right now, you know, the economy is pretty strong, but companies are taking way more money than they are supposed to. So like labor costs haven't really gone up, but prices have. So like minimum wage hasn't still hasn't gone up in a lot of the country since like the 80s or 90s, mm -hmm. but prices have continued to go up. And part of that is like prices globally and economic costs of, you know, just stuff in general, but like labor costs continue not to rise. And so during the pandemic, and I experienced this firsthand when I was working in a small shipping company, there were a lot of retailers that were making money hand over fist while not having to pay anybody as much or like having laid off a lot of their workforce. So like a select few people, they called them frontline workers, thank us for our service. But basically we put our lives on the line for an illness that no one could cure at the time that in order to maintain our rent and try to live in a system that was against us already, we weren't making enough money. But then because everyone was ordering online and ordering from home, a lot of these retailers made more money than they've ever seen in their fucking lives. And they 
had way less overhead because it was like one or two people a week working in their warehouses or working in their shops or whatever. Yeah. But that mindset has continued past the pandemic. And so they're raising prices because they're like, we were making a lot more money before we had to hire everybody back. And so prices are going up, but the workers aren't seeing those costs trickle down because mm-hmm. it just never works like that. It's about hoarding. And the thing about capitalism in general, right? Sorry, I've been talking for a while, but it's like you are not ever going to be paid what you're worth because for capitalism to work, you have to be making less than the company is making off of your labor. It's like if you feel like you're being fucked over at the end of the day by a job, like you work as a server or you work in retail or you work a lot of like this is why I try to do a job that I believe in because I know I am getting fucked over financially no matter what you do for a living unless you're at the very top, unless you're a billionaire like Jeff Bezos and you don't do anything at all anymore because the system is flawed, incredibly so. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so the debt ceiling is happening and our Congress is still arguing about it. Yeah. And going into an election year as well, I don't see Republicans agreeing with Democrats on any way because they can use us. Essentially, if we exceed the debt ceiling and fuck over the whole world's economy, the Republicans can use that as a lot of evidence as to why Biden should not be reelected and why Trump or DeSantis or whoever they end up pushing through the primary should take the White House. So, yeah, it's like we're being held hostage by the Republican Party at this point because they want to see the Democrats fail, even if it's at the expense of the American people so that they can come back in power and be like, oh, look, now everything's okay. And in addition to that, they want to, like, cut food stamps and federal aid for things like the federal budget. But no one's looking at the budget for the military. Oh, yeah. I have been arguing against the military budget since I was in high school because what the fuck? It's insane. It's way too much. Yeah. If you cut our military budget, I'm trying to remember the statistic. I used to say this in high school all the time. But I think if you cut our military budget in half, we would still have the largest military budget in the world. What kills me about that large military budget, too, is it mostly goes to research and development and it doesn't help social programs for veterans like it should. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Social program for veterans are trash. Mm -hmm. I could go on about that forever because I have family in the military. I know people who've been in the military and they are not taken care of. Yeah. Well, and speaking of the way that the military fucks veterans over, I just learned this fact this week from the book club that when homosexual people were dishonorably discharged for being gay, which was happening up until like the 80s, they didn't get any military benefits. If you're dishonorably discharged, you don't get any of the stipends or the care or the benefits that any other veterans get. So again, proud to be an American. At least I know I'm free. So you've suggested as well as 2021 Secretary Janet Yellen that abolishing the debt ceiling altogether could prevent the Treasury from paying the policies previously enacted by Congress. What would be the consequences of us abolishing the debt ceiling? Like, are there negative side effects to that? Like, why haven't we done it? There are not negative side effects as I see it, but I can see why politicians who have tried to pass other legislation in the negotiations for raising the debt ceiling might believe that is a negative consequence. Does that track? I don't know. Can you explain why they would think it's a negative consequence, though? So the way that Congress passes bills and they agree on things is there's the one thing, there's the bill, and then there's a bunch of other things around it and other suggestions and other negotiations that are going on. There are things that Republicans will put into Democratic-backed bills 
as a negotiation that have nothing to do with the actual bill at hand. And that's called pork. Yeah. Oh, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. So when they're negotiating these things and they're like, oh, well, you got to pay up on these other things that you agreed to if we're going to raise the debt ceiling. They're not just talking about raising the debt ceiling. They're also talking about all of the other things that they want to get done. And so they're holding the financial state of the world in their hands because they're like, ah, well, food stamps got to go. I wouldn't be surprised if in the near future someone tried to use a similar tactic when it comes to LGBTQ rights. It doesn't have to be financially based. It could be anything. They're like, well, if you want us to raise the debt ceiling, you got to repeal equality in marriage. Yeah. So basically, if we were to eradicate the debt ceiling, we get rid of this clause that provides Republicans with like a ransom note that they can hold the world hostage with. Yeah. And potentially Democrats as well in the near future. So depending on who's in the White House, right? Because if this debt ceiling thing doesn't go away, this is like the I feel like it's like the fifth or sixth time in my adulthood that this has happened. This feels like it happens every few years. Mm -hmm. What was the leverage that the Democrats used last time? Oh, I don't know. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. All I know is that they're arguing about the debt ceiling and the government shut down. The government shut down under Trump for a fucking long time. And it shut down under Obama for this reason, is the debt ceiling shit. But it was a government shutdown and not a full collapse. But I feel like at this point, economists have been saying it's like a full collapse. You said earlier that this could have specific impacts on us in Seattle. How would it affect people in Seattle specifically in ways that it might not affect other Americans? Well, so the reason that I moved to Seattle partially was because, A, it's the Pacific Northwest is a really great spot for climate change. Like it's not going to be as affected by fires and ice storms. It's just a really good spot for that. So it'll bounce back from natural disasters a lot easier. The reason I chose Seattle specifically outside of, you know, personal reasons for the person I moved up here with, but I was okay with moving to Seattle because it historically over the last 30 years has bounced back from recessions faster than any other city. And the tech companies that are here are a large part of that because tech jobs, if a factory closes down, that whole city is out of business, right? That whole town, a lot of workers. But if a tech company, for whatever reason, tech companies are just a lot more resilient because they don't have like a factory where everyone works. People can work from home. People can do X, Y, Z. And it's part of the reason that Seattle rebounded from the, the recession caused by COVID so quickly as well. Yeah. Right. So there are a lot of factors that mean that the tech economy, despite us all like laughing and hating tech bros, the money that comes from that is actually crazy beneficial to everyday life in Seattle. And its continuation as like one of the wealthiest cities in the world Mm -hmm. or in the country, at least. So those are my reasons for moving up here because the Silicon Valley Bank shut down. (laughs) Right. And a lot of people like Microsoft is tightening its belt. Google's tightening its belt. Google actually in Russia is being sued or fined for like three million rubles for not taking down YouTube videos that Russia considers LGBT propaganda. So that's a whole other thing. But like Google is getting hit by other conservative countries financially on top of the Silicon Valley Bank shutting down and all of these companies are buckling down. Bezos at one point was like, yeah, we got to curb our spending. That was a couple months ago. And when a billionaire says that, you know, economists take note and then they're like, oh, it's going to it's going to affect us later on. So batten down the hatches. And then what ends up happening is big companies aren't thinking ahead. And then they all rush for their wallets and then they stop spending money. And when they stop spending money, they stop hiring people or they stop like Microsoft just froze salaries for their full time employees. And when that happens, those people stop spending money. And when they stop spending money, 
the workforce that supports the rest of Seattle, you know, servers, blue collar workers, people that get the money from the rich people <laughs> that spend money at our restaurants stop getting as much money. Yeah. Because there's less business. And so it just keeps going. The only way trickle down economics ever seems to work is when people at the top are like, oh, we got to stop spending. And then everyone freaks out. Yeah. Right. So Seattle could head for a very specific collapse because there are multiple things happening. And I'm not an economist. I'm just I notice patterns and I'm not an expert by any means, but I do notice patterns. And this happened with the housing crisis, <laughs> you know, in 2008, something similar happened. And I don't know, capitalism, we need a better system than what we have. So this doesn't keep happening. Yeah, absolutely. But there are a lot of factors that are going into it. Well, thank you for that brief explanation as to how our tech bro economy makes Seattle a little bit different from California or New York in terms of how we will be economically impacted by this debt ceiling crisis. Well, yeah. And also Seattle's like the only major metropolitan area on in Western Washington, really. Tacoma counts, but it's like that's the one that everyone comes to. And Olympia is a major metropolitan area, but it's not financially the same at all or Tacoma. So Seattle's this huge city. Like in California, if something bad is happening in a city, it's 45 minutes to the next one. Mm -hmm. California is one of the most urbanized states, if not the most urbanized state in the country. So it's like the money isn't going to stop flowing just because one city is having a financial crisis. But if the money stops flowing here in Seattle or like the, wherever tech people have sunk their hooks into, right, it's going to affect Washington as a whole. Yeah. Quite severely. Well, I feel like Washington is more of the national norm, though, when it comes to big cities. I feel like California is kind of an outlier in having so many large metropolitan cities so close to each other because, I don't know, I'm thinking like New York or Colorado or Oregon, Idaho, all of these places. Usually they do just have like one primarily big city that they're known for. So could we see something like that happening nationwide then in all of those other states that, unlike California, don't have, like you were saying, just 45 minutes away from one metropolitan area, another one. Well, I think a great historical pattern or a great historical data point to look at is uh, Detroit in Michigan, because pre-70s, they were a bustling factory economy. And a lot of the factories were in Detroit and, and the surrounding small towns. And then there was an economic crisis. There was a gas crisis. And a lot of those factories got shut down. And we still think of Detroit as like not doing well. Yeah. Right. Like, and that's 50 years later. So tech is not the only industry in this city at all, but it is one of the largest ones, just like auto manufacturing used to be in Detroit. So that's my concern is it'll end up like the next Detroit, but maybe people will be happier then. Maybe prices will go down. Maybe people will stop complaining about the sunshine. They won't. <laughs> they never will. Well, folks... You've heard a lot of my voice today and my opinions. And if you think I'm wrong, let me know. I want to know. Write letters to the SGN, at us at Twitter, at radio.sgn. Follow us at Seattle Gay News and Seattle Gay News underscore on TikTok. And yeah, come at me, bro. I want to be corrected. I really do. There's only one way to learn if I'm wrong or not. And then it, that's if someone points out that I'm wrong and they have something to back it up. Lindsay, you got anything else to say before we head out? No, I just want to go back really quick to Mapu Maya as well, because they are still looking for people that would be willing to volunteer. So if you are somebody with medical professional qualities, if you're a doctor, a nurse, someone in that vein, and you are either LGBTQ or Pacific Islander, 
please get in contact with them. They would love to have you because if they can have more doctors, they can be open more days a week. That also counts for therapists as well. So yeah, shout out if any of our listeners fit those qualifications. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Eat some chocolate chip and we'll see you in the funny pages. Radio SGN is hosted by A.V. Eichenbaum and Lindsay Anderson and produced by A.V. Eichenbaum. Music for this show was provided by TRG Banks and Jesse Spillane or was provided for free by Anchor. Thank you so much for listening. Check us out on SGN.org or wherever you find podcasts. This podcast is part of the Seattle Gay News Podcasting Network.